welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We are bringing on the head coach of Division Three Norwich University, Cam Ellsworth. And Cam has had an awesome career up to this point. He grew up in Leamington, Ontario, played his college hockey at Michigan Tech. He started off his coaching career at Sioux City in the USHL before going on to coach for seven years at UMass Lowell, where they won a ton of championships after they took over. Uh, he then went on to coach at Norwich University, where they came runner-up in the Division Three title game just a few years ago. And some of these numbers uh, that you're going to hear about uh, his time there at Norwich is just absolutely insane. Cam is an awesome guy, one of my really good friends in the game. And before we do get over to him, though, let's get over to another awesome guy in the talent of the podcast, Jeffrey Lavecchio. Vex, what's up today? Girl, just living, buddy. Just living. Had a nice, nice, easy day in the gym, which was uh, nice. Had a couple of pretty long days in the gym with the boys and myself. So it was fun to have a nice little easy day and uh, excited to talk about these couple of podcasts, the one we're releasing today and, and the last one we dropped with Coach Riley. What an unreal human being. What an unreal episode. And I know I've gotten a ton of feedback on it. I know you have as well. Yeah, I got a ton of like, this is up there in terms of the amount of people that have messaged me about it. And and one of the biggest ones was obviously coach Riley is the head coach at army and has had two people that he has coached that have been killed in action. Uh, Derek Hines and, and TK Kennedy and TK's brother actually reached out to me after uh, listening to the podcast, just saying how much of a great guy coach Riley is and, and what he's done for the family, even since TK has passed away. And so just a, a real heartwarming episode and just an unbelievable episode on leadership. Uh, the Riley family is, is again, like hockey royalty in the United States. And the fact that their family has been the head coach, whether it was his dad, Jack, his brother, Rob, and now Brian for 70 years at army. And so just incredible. And uh, yeah. So if you haven't listened to that one, uh, make sure you listen to that one. Cause it was a phenomenal, phenomenal conversation. I love that we're following up with another phenomenal conversation with an absolute beauty. And I think there's a, a, a method to the madness. If you're, not allowing any goals, you're going to win games and, and listening to, to coach here on this episode and talking to him after it was really cool to hear some of his philosophies. And uh, I mean, there's something he's doing that it's right. I, I feel like a lot of people should be copying this guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amazing. You look at the numbers that he's had at Norwich. So just, I mean, so he was the Edward Jeremiah winner, which is the head the head, the top head coach in division three last year, uh, before COVID hit. Uh, so 47, seven and five records since he's been there, he's been there two years, 33, one and four record after January 1st. So in the two years that he's been there, he's lost one game after January 1st. And, uh, last year, the team broke nine NCAA division three records with, uh, with their play. And they had, they had a goals against average under one. That is insane. That's unbelievable. Like, I don't, I don't understand it. 
<laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, so we we got the chance to talk to Cam about that. We got he coached and recruited Connor Hellebuck to UMass Lowell when he was there, and Lowell when him and head coach Norm Bazin took over, Lowell was kind of like an afterthought. And since they took over, uh, they have won three Hockey East championships. They've won two Hockey East regular season championships. They've been to five Hockey East championship games. Uh, they made the Elite A, the NCAA tournament, uh, four times, and they made the Frozen Four once. And so you talk about a lesson in coaching here. This was phenomenal. And we got into, again, uh, the defensive numbers are insane. And, uh, you know, Cam coached Connor Hellebuck and recruited Connor Hellebuck to Lowell. Uh, but, like, just, it, just we talked about goalies. We talked about defensive stuff. I mean, it was a master class on, on coaching, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And, like, to hear to hear – how he does it and how aggressive and how his style is has and other teams have, have tried to copy it. And um, I would have loved to play for this guy. Like the way that he was just like, like going, always going, always pressuring, always, you know, playing with energy and things like that. I feel like, you know, it would be a really, really fun style as a player to play. Um, not against them though. It sounds like it would be terrible to play against that style. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the cool part too about the conversation is we didn't just talk about hockey stuff. We talked about culture stuff. We talked about life stuff too. I mean, Cam and I had a lot of really long, deep conversations, you know, as I was going through the process of, of getting out of college hockey and, and figuring something else out. And, and Cam has made the choice to, to go to the division three level, to be a head coach, to get that experience. And we've talked a lot about work-life balance and, and, and all of that. And we had a lot of conversations about that. So he's a great, great guy. You guys are going to absolutely love this conversation with him and uh yeah it's a, it's a great conversation for people to understand how good division three hockey is too because division three hockey are really really good hockey players and uh, I, I feel like sometimes people think oh if i can't just play division one i'll just play division three and you just want to be like it ain't that easy <laughs> there's a lot of really good players playing division three level now you're seeing players at d3 go on uh to transfer portal go to play division one you're seeing division three players that are going on to play pro hockey and so division one coaches aren't perfect and there are people that get slipped through the cracks that are really good players that potentially could be at the division one level so uh, it was good to hear his perspective on the level two and and for all the kids out there it's just don't don't just look at division three as a fallback plan it's good good hockey too yeah and i think that's something that parents and players need to hear like everyone you know because of social media talk about time the world is smaller you see you know all these kids going division one you think oh it's going to be easy then i'm going to do it too and it's like no they're taking all the spots like it's very hard to go to division one and that's not to discourage you that's to encourage you to keep getting better keep finding ways on the ice off the ice listening to our podcast like (laughs) find ways to get better And if division one winds up not being a thing, division three is still very hard to get to. And again, it's unbelievable hockey. My line mate um, with the Panthers, when I got traded to the Panthers in the AHL, Eric Selleck came from D3. He wound up playing a couple games in NHL. He had an unreal professional career. Like D3 is very good hockey. Do not sleep on it. 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Before we do get over to Cam, a uh, couple things we want to talk about. It's been a big week in college hockey, some for the good, some not so much for the good. Uh, we'll start with the bad news first. And uh, so unfortunately, we found out over the weekend that University of Maine head coach Red Gendron uh, passed away uh, suddenly, which just shook the hockey world. If you went on the social media over the weekend, you'll see all the just great things that people had to say about red red uh, won a Stanley cup with the New Jersey devils in their organization. I actually think he won multiple Stanley cups with the devils in their organization. He won a national championship with Maine way back in the day in the nineties. And then uh, as an assistant coach at Yale, uh, he won a national championship as well. And, and he was just a, it was interesting looking at all the social media posts because the one word that really a lot of people said when talking about red was genuine and he was literally one of the most genuine people that I have met in the business. And I was fortunate. So my first year as a, uh, as a full-time assistant coach at Cornell, it was uh, red's first year at Yale. And I remember being in Minnesota really early on in my recruiting. And, and when you get into recruiting, you, you don't know what's going on. <laughs> you, you know, yeah, you're trying to figure it out just like everybody and, and trying to figure out what your process is, trying to figure out how it all works. And I just remember this big grizzly guy. And so red, it's this big guy. He's got this big white hair, his huge white mustache. People actually called him when uh, Yale came to to Cornell to play against Cornell, our fans would yell Colonel Sanders at him because he had a little bit of a resemblance to Colonel Sanders. And uh, it was pretty funny. But um, so I just remember at that recruiting event, again, this is a guy that has won national championships and won Stanley Cups. And this big grizzly bear of a guy just comes up to me, puts his arm around my shoulder and says, hey, kid, let's go watch the game together. And so we just sat there and watched most of the game together. And I got to pick his brain on a lot of different stuff. And he said, you know what, whatever you need, you just let me know if I'm here to help you. And, and this, I mean, Yale and Cornell are rivals. I mean, we're, we're rivals. And so it just kind of gives you a good sense of kind of like the, the brotherhood of the college hockey coaches community a little bit, but also, I mean, this guy just went above and beyond for people and, you know, that's a story that I have. And another story that I have, too, is just this past summer, uh, you know, I hadn't spoken to Red in a little bit. And uh, he called me just out of the blue and said, hey, I just found out about your hockey think tank stuff and the podcast and your website and, and everything like that. And I got to look through it. And he's like, this is amazing. This is awesome stuff. And what can I do to help? Let me help. What can I do to get this out there? What can I do? Just let me know. And, and so we just had a great conversation just catching up. And that's just who Red was. He was a very caring individual. You know, you see some of the stuff coming out from some of his players and some of his ex-players just about what a great person he was and how genuine he was. And it's, it's a really big loss for the hockey community. I mean, he's a big personality, just a fantastic person. And I wanted to mention him on this podcast because, you know, I hope his legacy lives on and I hope people like me and, and people that are still in the business can take a lot of the good that Red is and, and, uh, and, and continue on his legacy in the hockey world today. Wow. Wow. Sounds like a great man. Well said. Great man. Great man. So, you know, obviously our condolences out to, to the Maine and, and Reds hockey family um, and family in general. And, and uh, we're going to miss him. We're going to miss seeing him in the ranks. And I know a lot of people will. So rest in peace, Red, and uh, um, our condolences. So uh, moving on from that, a little bit happier news. Uh, so I do want to congratulate one of my best friends in the game. He was actually my roommate. 
uh, we came in coaching together at Cornell, uh, Chris Mayotte, and he just took the head coaching job at Colorado College. So he's moving there from the University of Michigan. And, you know, he was a volunteer coach at Cornell not too many years ago when both him and I started that same year together. He lived with Emma and I in our house with his girlfriend at the time, now wife, Julie, and, and to see him get his shot and opportunity to be a D- division one head coach at an amazing school like Colorado college. Um, just very, very happy for him. And uh, so wanted to ask you Vex, if you were to take over a division one college program, what's the first couple of things you would do? Oh my God. The first thing that's Putting you on the spot. That is like, so on the spot. Uh, I guess I'd first and foremost have a meeting with all the current players that were on the team. Um, and I would just talk about like where we wanted to go as a program from my starting tenure. Like that's day one, right? Whatever happened last year happened. Now it's a new family, a new ship, a new everything. We're going to get in it together and we're going to go the same direction. And, uh, I don't know after that, just, I guess, have a meeting with all the staff and just talk about all of the expectations like immediately and that everyone is there. There's no one person that's more important than the other from the guy who fills up the water bottles in between periods to, you know, myself as a head coach, it would be, we're all pulling this together. Yes. Some of us have different responsibilities or, or maybe perceived bigger responsibilities, but everyone's responsibilities all are equal. They all matter. They all matter the most whenever they're being done. So like if everyone got in the same same vehicle. I feel like it could go places like coach Riley talked about last episode, like, like playing together, playing for the guy next to you, not with them, that, that type of mentality. I would want to establish the culture first and then move from there to the, to the game plans. Yeah. It's so funny. You say that they're playing for you. So I actually had my team. So we have our state tournament this weekend and so it will be over by the time that this podcast comes out. But I actually had all my players listen to that podcast with coach Riley. And so we talked about it in the locker room last night. I just kind of asked them, I let them lead it and I asked them what they took out of it. And that was one of the biggest things, you know, especially going into the state tournament possibility of our being last weekend together. Uh, it was playing for the guy next to you. That was one of the biggest things that they, they talked about. So hopefully we can carry that little mantra into this weekend. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Are you going to play the, uh, every time I like think of state, state tournament, state championship, because we didn't have that in St. Louis growing up. There was only one triple A team and the double A teams didn't like do that. Uh, I always think about watching your old home videos and you, <laughs> and I remember you coming out, maybe you were a squirt and they had like, I think there was like a fog machine. Each player came out there were, the lights were off. There was a spotlight and they were playing that Chicago bulls dynasty entrance, like bam, 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 bam. And I was just like, Oh my God. And Topher Scott and you skated out. I was like, we don't have anything like this. My cousin's famous. This is a Dude, I remember watching those home videos. I was like, this is the freaking coolest thing. It was basically the NHL to me. Like, I thought it was amazing. You should play that song for the boys. It was the coolest thing ever because the lights went out, the spotlight came on, the smoke machine came out, and uh, not 
not going to brag here, but uh, the Glenview Stars AA organization won three state championships in a row. So uh, we had a lot of really good players on our teams too. A couple yeah. guys and going you, on. And you were scoring more. 14 points a game back then too. Don't lie. No, no. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was cool, man. It was really cool. But yeah, so we got our state tournament this weekend. I'm really looking forward to it. We'll, we'll give everybody a little bit of a breakdown of how it went next week. And uh, so, yeah, so that was a lot of fun. And then uh, the last thing we want to talk about before we do get over to Cam and go through our sponsors is uh, we want to congratulate UMass Amherst for winning the national championship. You know, Greg Carville and his staff with Benny Barr and, and Jared DeMichael, D-Mike, they, uh, they took over, I think it was five years ago, and they got to the national championship game uh, the previous year, or the previous time there was a national championship game when they had Cal McCarr on their team and, uh, and lost to University of Minnesota Duluth and then uh, took it this year against St. Cloud. So uh, great job by those guys. It was funny. I was actually in Columbus over the weekend uh, with my team uh, doing some tune-up games against the Junior Blue Jackets before our state tournament. And Nick Petraglia, who we've had on the podcast, is working with the, the Columbus Blue Jackets organization <clears throat> with their youth program. And him and Ben Barr, they actually played hockey together at Shattuck St. Mary's. And they won a national championship together there. So on the day of the national championship game, Trags has a, uh, a picture of their national championship winning uh, whatever picture that they take. And so I took a picture of it and texted it to Ben and said, Hey, you guys won a national championship before why as well win another one today. And they did. And, uh, so very, very cool. Awesome guys. They're very, very happy for them and nothing like winning a national championship. Yeah. Unbelievable. Absolutely. Unbelievable. So cool. Um, I didn't get to watch any of the games, but I saw the celebrations and I saw, you know, the highlights and all that stuff and college hockey, man, it's cut. It's like, how far has it come in the last like 20 years? I know it's such a long time, but like you, if you ever watch college hockey games 20 years ago, and then like when we were in it and then now, like, I mean, it is, it is unbelievable. Even when we played like 2007, eight, nine, 10, six, you know, all the, like it's so good. Well, you go, cause you got there a year before me, right? I was, uh, I was yeah, over there. Yeah. Oh, four, oh five was my first year. Four oh five. Oh my God. You're so old. I know. Um, yeah, dude. Like it's crazy watching the games now and the skill level is just, it's insane. Absolutely insane. So yeah, congrats to, to all those guys. Congrats to Mayo. Congrats to, uh, to the UMass guys. And, and obviously we have red main hockey and his family in, uh, in our thoughts moving forward. Um, and then moving forward, let's get to thank our sponsors. We want to thank gel sticks, G E L S T X.com. Go there to get your weighted training sticks. The weather is starting to get nice and I'm seeing some more people in town getting outside with their nets and their little fiberglass uh, shooting stations, if that's what you want to call them. So uh, get outside and, and shoot some pucks with your gel sticks to make your shot better. They also have lacrosse sticks. They have golf clubs. Uh, I'm actually scheduled to golf for the first time in about two years next week. So I'm excited for that. I'm going to shoot about a 749. Um, so not looking forward to that, but we'll see how she goes. So thank you to gel sticks train heroic Vex, You want to take this one? Train heroic. Thank you to the guys at train heroic, Josh and the boys train heroics where I keep all of my online training programs for both hockey players and for anyone who just wants to train like a badass the way that I do. I let anybody train with me on my team called train with me and it's on train road. Look it up. Want to help your kids get better, more athletic. You can try my training out and teach them stuff you learn from it. So thanks to train heroic. 
There we go. And thank you to icehockeysystems.com. And for the drill this week that we're going to talk about, Vex, I want to talk about a little 1v1v1 drill. So it's a one-on-one-on-one. So it's kind of like a one-on-two because only one person can have the puck at a time. It's all about puck protection when you have pressure on you. So you throw a puck into the corner and, uh, you know, yeah, it's basically a one man for themselves trying to get it try and protect the puck and, and trying to score. And so there's nothing much to the drill <laughs> other than that, but it's a great drill for puck protection. It's a, like the best players. And we've talked to Brandon Nerado and I talk to him about this all the time. Like the best players are very good under pressure. And when you have a one V two, you're under a lot of pressure. So you really have to learn how to use your body to protect the puck. You have to learn how to manipulate the defenders and and cut one way and go the other way and try and bring the puck to the net. And uh, it's just a great drill. You got to compete. You really have to compete to get pucks. You have to compete to get to the net um, with guys all over you. And, and then, you know, the way that a lot of teams, play defense in their own zone nowadays is they're trying to pressure very fast. They're trying to outnumber you. They're trying to pin you in the corner, try to get the puck back as fast as you can. And so it's just a really good compete drill, really good puck protection drill. And uh, if you can end up getting a shot on goal by getting it through those other two guys, then good for you. And as soon as you get the puck, you're on offense. As soon as you lose the puck, you're on defense. So it's always a one V two and just an awesome drill. Just a lot of competing in that one too. Like oh yeah, you're, you're going against factors. You're going uphill, and if you're losing a game, you're down late in the game. You're going uphill. If you're playing against a team that is unbelievable in their D zone at hitting, pinning, and then having that support guy in there that we've talked about on this show when we did the forward D break, uh, offensive and defensive zone breakdowns, those are really hard to play against. You're going uphill. So like, this is a great drill. I love. I love having to find offense when it's really hard, like doing drills and practice like that. because then if you find yourself in an easy situation, it's much easier. If you always do drills where it's so easy to get an offensive shot or an offensive chance, then you get to a game and you got to battle through that adversity. You're not used to it. So I really like this drill. One of the things we used to track at Cornell um, in my last couple of years, there was, we called it EBO effort before offense. So what was the effort that you made to get the puck back? Or what was the effort that you made to make a play so you can play on offense? So talk about like, you know, a puck retrieval after a shot. If you win that one-on-one battle to go get the puck back and get possession, then we end up with a scoring chance out of it. Like that's an effort before offense play. If you drive the net and somebody's all over you and you end up getting a rebound goal or a rebound chance, that's effort before offense. If, uh, you know, if the other team's bringing the puck and you skate and get above somebody and cause a turnover and then and it goes the other way and uh, and you get a scoring chance out of it. That's effort before offense. And it's amazing for the scoring chances. And I encourage a lot of coaches when you're doing your video, watch what happens for the first 15, 20 seconds before you get your scoring chance. And I can guarantee you there's some kind of an effort play, some kind of a team play that happens that allows you to either get possession of the puck or put yourself in a position where you can play offensively. And, uh, you know, I think it's huge. So that's something we used to track. And I think it was huge for us. I love that. Did you guys get that from somewhere else? Did you create that internally? Did Chaves come up with that? Uh, we, we created that internally. I mean, I don't know the Genesis of, I'm sure we were talking about it or we saw something from somewhere, but you know, that effort before offense is something that we, uh, yeah, we just kind of start, started to realize. I love that. And like, you know, with all these advanced stats and metrics and stuff like that, like, I love this one. Like that's going to show, cause like that, it could be something, like you said, you, you 
battle your ass off on a, on a turnover. You climb above the puck, you cause a turnover. It goes off your skate. They go off another guy's skate. They go the other way and score. You're not showing up on the score sheet, but that goal doesn't happen without you doing that. So I love like being able to kind of quantify that and then show it to guys and rank guys off of those types of plays. I, I love that. I'm glad you do. <laughs> so one V one V one drill. It's kind of like a one V two drill. Uh, it's great. Great drill. So, um, okay. Vex, are you ready for this? So we're going to get, <laughs> we can get into the Roxbury, but also, <laughs> so we, uh, also want to thank blue wire pods, which is the podcast company that we are now under their umbrella. And, uh, we now have an ad read for you. Yeah, and so we, we are going to do this ad read. I'm going to do the first one because I have it, but Vex, you're definitely going to be doing these in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so we have an ad read for you guys. And then we're going to head in on over to Cam Ellsworth, who is uh, just an unbelievable human being. Great coach. One of my really good friends in the game. You guys are going to absolutely love this one. So um, we are going to do an ad read. And then without further ado, after that, we're going to go with Cam Ellsworth. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast. He's out in beautiful Norwich, Vermont, Cam Ellsworth. Cam, what's going on today? Not much, man. Appreciate uh, appreciate you having me on. Yeah, we're pumped. We're pumped, and uh, it's it's weird just talking to you beforehand. Like, I can't believe we're 150 odd episodes in. We haven't had you on yet, so this is uh, it's good to finally get you. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, and I I want to just commend you and and you know we had talked a lot as you started this and super excited for you and all the success you've had to this thanks man well it's because we bring on good people like you so let's let's bring it way back and start from the beginning you grew up in leamington ontario small town uh I remember going and watching a few junior b games and you're mucking around the rink over there where i'm trying to find players up in that area and they end up going to you but uh anyways uh talk to us a little bit about growing up in leamington yeah, small town, small town uh, kid, a lot smaller then than it is now, but, uh, you know, I had great family. Uh, my my parents, uh, mom's a teacher, dad worked in the auto industry just on the line at Chrysler and had a sister and they did everything they could to give us all the opportunities. And, uh, you know, we kind of grew up around sports and uh, played it all, played baseball, soccer, golf, and then kind of fell in love with hockey. So, um, and again, my folks gave me all the opportunity. My sister ended up being a division one golfer and, um, gave her all the opportunity. So, uh, extremely thankful for all the sacrifice and work that they did. What are you guys eating in the Ellsworth household? You got two <laughs> D one players. Good, good grief. I need to, I need to start that. Like I'm looking at jockey babies here in the Scott household between my <laughs> wife and I and our, our height. So what, what do you got going on up there? <laughs> yeah. You know what? Just like, like I said, we're just. I think it was just more exposure to opportunity and, and, you know, parents that really, I don't want to say pushed us. They just, they uh, provided for us as much as we would show that we wanted to take on. And, uh, you know, I, for me, hockey was that I, I started playing probably 13, 14, somewhere in there, like started playing in the summers and, you know, it was a small town in a center. Um, and, and we started playing in the summer with some select teams and, and again, they were just incredibly, uh, supportive and would take us to tournaments and, you know, practices and, you know, a lot of stories like that, that I'm sure we all have, but, uh, you know, so they, they did that. And then a little different in my area, like 
I grew up and, and there's not really like a high school scene. U18 didn't exist really at that time. So like my first junior was, I played junior C and then I played a year of junior B and then I played tier two A and then um, made my way into the North American league. So it was like a long time coming, but that wasn't totally atypical for kids in our area. So it was a, it's a different, it's a long road. I got a lot of suitcases and a lot of jerseys, but um, yeah, it was, it was, like I said, it was great. So what's that like growing up in small town, Canada? Uh, you know, it, there still is junior C, junior B um, around, but it's uh, not as prevalent. I don't think anymore as it used to be with the rise of midget hockey and especially some of these academies that are popping up around, around the areas and stuff. But like, what was it like to slug it out in low level juniors as a younger guy and then really kind of have to work your way up, especially as a goaltender, you know, that had to have been something that uh, couldn't have been easy. No, I mean, I don't think it was. I mean, um, I just kind of hung around and, and kept going at it. Um, yeah, it's just, again, it's what, it's what people did. And, and to this day, there's, you know, you could go to a local junior C game back home and be a great following season tickets, you know, the whole thing. Again, you and I saw each other at, at junior B games and, um, great crowds and passionate people. And, you know, they got the oh, billet yeah. families and the whole thing. So uh, it's big. And then, you know, again, for myself, it was just, I, I kind of tripped and fell and I, uh, I ended up in Toronto and then saw like how closer, how much closer I think that was to college. Um, and then I tried out in the North American league and in, in, in Sault Ste. Marie. And then that was really when I took off, like that, that was a whole, that was like professional hockey versus, you know, junior C tier two A back in Canada, we were or junior B even we were practicing once, twice a week. And to go over to Sault Ste. Marie, the North America league, every day you're practicing, you got lift schedules, you, you, you're doing stuff that college players do. And, um, you know, that to me, again, maybe fell into it, didn't really know. Um, but again, that was kind of the transformation. That's where I think I got an opportunity to get into college hockey. That's so interesting because like, I feel like a lot of kids when they get to the higher levels, when it starts to be a little bit more professional, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way where people are taking it a lot more seriously and stuff. I think, I feel like a lot of kids can get intimidated by that a little bit. Um, especially the younger kids. I know I did my first little bit in junior hockey, but I, I love the way that you frame that where it's like, Hey, like, wow, this is actually going to make me a lot better. And this competition is that much better and it's going to make me better. And I get, I get to do all of these things rather than like, Holy crap, this is really scary. It's a great way to frame it. Yeah, we got, I got really lucky too. I mean, my first year our captain was Adam Nightingale who's at the U S team now and uh, was just he was a great communicator and he's a great captain. And uh, I wasn't ready to practice every day or lift or do those things. I was, I was a goalie from small town, Canada. I was like, I was a gamer. So practice wasn't even that important because we hardly practiced. And so that is like, the worst name for a player, a gamer. The worst, right? <laughs> I hate that so much. But it's, I mean, it's awesome, but I hate it. No, and, and I had to learn. And I, I, I don't know that I ever got, good at practice but I got okay enough I think but like those guys like Adam being the first one like pushed me to get better and and uh you know you could just see whether it was the guys that you were playing against um and that was kind of at the advent of like the internet and so like all of a sudden the Heisenberg list started coming out and 
you could see that people you were playing against were getting college opportunities. And like, it just, it was like this kind of like, Hey, we're close. We, you know, we're, we're arriving. And uh, you know, again, the intimidation for me is I went in after Ryan Miller. So he, he's like getting his Jersey retired and, and some big shoes to fill. (laughs) I got to go play nets there. So, um, but it was great. Joe Sean, who's, who's actually, small world coach at my alma mater at Michigan tech was my coach there and, and two great years there. Um, and, and kind of landed me that, that next step to get, to get over to tech. Small world. That's for <laughs> sure. And one of my good friends of the business, Jamie Russell was your coach at Michigan tech. The, the hockey world is extremely small, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it is very much so. Oh man. How'd you enjoy playing at tech? I loved it. I mean, it was challenging for a goalie on a 10th place team in the old WCHA. Um, yeah, Minnesota, North Dakota, CC. Let's uh, let it rip, baby. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was nightly. Um, but, you know, again, looking back on it, I got a, I got a great degree. I, I got to play for four years. Um, I met my wife there. Uh, I go back there a lot. I, I got a ton of friends and it was just perfect for me. It was the perfect fit for me. And I don't know, sure we'll probably talk recruiting and you and I I don't know if kids get to have that experience to go to different campuses like I did um but when I went there it was just it was done I was like yeah that's it so um looking back I have absolutely no regrets on going there or doing it again it's kind of delivered me down the path and um it was a perfect fit for me you kind of talk about that feeling. Cause I have that too. I heard other players say that before I went to Western and decided there, but I went on one visit and I was like, Oh my God, absolutely not. I could never see myself going here. Like I hope I get another scholarship offer. And then I went to Western and literally like within three hours, two hours, I was like, I can see myself here. I want to be here. So I felt that click right away. So maybe a twofold question, like how did you know, what did you feel and then on the other side, what are things that coaches, if there is anything, can coaches do so that players who come to their school get that feeling and they want to commit there? Yeah. Um, so for me, my, my family, even though I grew up in Ontario, my family's from Eastern Canada, a small coal mining town. And uh, it was, you know, every summer we would go out there and it was just a small community, you know, a bunch of like local mom and pop restaurants, stores row housing it was just this thing I grew up with and then tech is like a small uh copper mining community uh, in Houghton Hancock and so even driving in it just felt like home and then I met the people and the rink and I don't again maybe I can't put my finger it just felt like home and I went on a couple other visits similar to yourself that they were great but it just it wasn't like over the edge and uh you know and then from the from the uh, coaching side and I I've tried to take that at Lowell and, and then here at, at Norwich is, I just think we, I sell and try to be like incredibly honest on what we are. And uh, at Lowell, we had, there were certain things that we did and that were very good. And if you were looking for that, like we tried to make that your home, Norwich is the same thing. It's not for everybody, but for the person looking for a, B and C I just lay it out there for them. And so if that's what they're seeking, um, it could become pretty home-like pretty quickly in my experience. 
That makes so much sense. It, like just the fit, you have to be honest with the recruits because if you're not honest with them and they end up committing to you, even if it's a big commit and then it's a completely different experience than what they were, what they were anticipating coming in, then they're not going to be happy, you know? No, sure. And so, and, and I also think, you know, like I, I think the best recruiters are your players. So we always had, and I'm sure you guys did too. And that's why it's so important to recruit good kids because when the other recruits get on campus and they see, and they hear your players talking about how much they enjoy their experiences and the value that it's brought to them. And Hey, I can see myself because at the end of the day, like these are the guys that you're going to war with. And these are the guys that are going to be your best friends for the rest of your life. And so I think that aspect for me, like when I went to Cornell and, and Cam, you know, Charlie Cook, he was the guy that showed me around and <clears throat> can't get very much better people than him, <laughs> yep. you know, well. Northern Michigan kid. And, and so um, I think that's a huge piece of it too. No, for sure. Now they're, they're even more connected than ever before. Right. So, um, you know, whether they're fr friends or they know a friend and then there's just, there's so many ways that they, once we pick up the phone and recruit them instantly, somebody's knocking on the door. It's like, Hey coach, my buddy said you called them. And um, so, yeah, to your point, that's been something I've noticed uh, on, on the coaching side and, and tried to leverage that is, you know, treating your players great because they're going to be your biggest advocates. We're all recruiting. We're all going to try to sell. And then they're going to get down to the brass tacks and talk to the people that know. And, and if they can back that up, I think we got a real good chance. Well, on top of that too, then they're going to play their, their hearts out, their asses off because they love where they're at, as opposed to getting guys who don't love where they're at and they don't play well because they're upset all the time. So like that fit is so important from both sides. No, I couldn't agree more. And that's, like I said, Norwich is uh, coming here. It's a small, uh, small town and, and, in the middle of Vermont. And, you know, again, we're very open about what we do here. And if this, again, if that's what you want, then let's go. And to your point, um, and, and again, whether it's the su success that happened before I was here or the little bit that we've enjoyed, um, it's, it's a lot more about that work for each other and with each other and the love of the Jersey than it is about the name on the door of the coach. Right. So um, I've seen and experienced that firsthand. Oh man, there's no better feeling than that. There's literally no better feeling than that as a player or a coach as a player, because you're in it and you're battling and, and partying and you're with them 24 seven. Then as a coach, almost looking from a 10,000 foot view and seeing your players loving each other and sacrificing for each other. And you just kind of sitting back and as a recruiter, number one, being like, man, we brought awesome kids here. We just brought awesome kids here. And then number two, as a coach, you know, developing that culture where they're put in environments where they can love each other. And it's just from, from both sides of the bench, I don't know if there's a better feeling in hockey than feeling like you're with a group that you love and feel like you can win a championship with. Like you guys know the feeling. I, I don't know if there is a better feeling than like coming to the rink every day um, or leaving the rink every day with those guys and just being like, I belong here. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. And I'm playing for everybody else, not just myself. And it just, man, what a feeling. I like want to go play hockey right now. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. All right. So Cam, let me ask you this. Cause I don't know if we've had 
somebody on where we've talked about this before, but you coached in junior hockey before you went to Lowell, got the chance to, to coach at Sioux City in the USHL, the biggest feeder into division one hockey. Like what did you take with you as a coach at the junior level, seeing guys come in and recruit from college, see, kind of seeing what they did. Like, what did you learn as a junior coach that you thought made you a better coach and a better recruiter once you got into the coaching game at the college level? Um, I thought it was the relationship side and, and it was probably half the relationship with the kid and then more, or at least half the relationship with the coach and trying to, they're all good players. And like you said, like when you're recruiting and you're trying to build a team and you're looking at A, B, or C, like we got to get down and figure out which one's the fit. And so I felt that the more people not necessarily just like picked up the phone when they needed an answer, but like checked in or, you know, stayed and had dinner or whatever, like that relationship grew with our staff and we were more apt to, I don't say be honest, but like maybe we would pick up the phone before that kid popped, you know, or maybe we would say, Hey, this is, I stamp this or Hey, like you might want to call a few of this, these people and just, you know, so again, especially in college like that, it's four years. It's a long time. Junior hockey, it's like, you know, you could take a gamble on a kid for a playoff run. You could take, you know, a kid here, a kid there, and then you could trade them. Like college, it's 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 more of a marriage. And uh, you really have to make sure you do your homework and know exactly who's walking in the door. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I, so then you get to you get to Lowell. And was your year the same year that Norm was there? Were you guys come in together? Yeah, yeah. He uh, he hired me, hired me on as part of his first staff. Okay, so you were there what seven years, eight years? Seven. Seven years. All right, listen to this, Vex, and our listeners who are listening to our conversation right now. <laughs> so Lowell was not very good when you guys took over. In the eight years that you were there, you won three Hockey East championships and you were in five hockey's championship games. You went to the elite eight of the NCAA tournament four times, and you got to the frozen four once. Um, that's insane for Lowell in hockey East. And, you know, we've had a bunch of different conversations on recruiting and, and you touched on it earlier. Um, it's gotta be the right fit and you gotta be brutally honest. So for a school like Lowell, that's competing against the BCs, the BUs, you know, the teams that are getting these blue chip, um, players, what are the kinds of players that a Norm Bazin and Cam Ellsworth at Lowell are looking for that allows you guys to compete and, and thrive in hockey East? Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the uh the sentiment it's kind of it's surreal just laying out objective stats no, no i know it's surreal <laughs> five to think championship about, right? games in eight years after they hadn't had a winning season in how long <laughs> yeah I mean, it, was, it was um so i guess i would back up and i would just say like for me you talked about sioux city and like i think not only my path but like the timing of who i was around and who i learned from was incredibly important for me to like add success so like my first year, Todd cannot hired me and he's at Mankato. Oh, I didn't and know that. Okay. So like, that's my first boss and he's a year older, but he's been in junior hockey and he's been, they won it in Des Moines and he's been around it. And in my opinion, uh, again, my opinion, but I think he's the best recruiter in college hockey. I, I think it's, if he's not one, he's 
one. All right, here, so, I'll, I'll stop you really quick. I've told, I've actually told this on the podcast before. <laughs> um, but when I was at Cornell, one of the things that I used to do was I would talk to junior coaches or I would talk to advisors and agents and, and anybody who will listen. And then I would ask them like, who's the best recruiter in the game? Like who's the best recruiter in the game and what do they do? So I can learn and, and pick up some tricks of the trade and all that kind of stuff. And it was insane how many people said Todd cannot. And like almost everybody that I talked to said Todd cannot. So I just adding to your, <laughs> adding to your praise of Nodder here. Yeah. So that, so that was like my first guy. So, so he taught me. And again, like we've all transitioned from like playing to working and, and in whatever capacity, it's just the, the, the glitz and the glam goes away and at the hours and the time and, and you start figuring out your, your job craft, whatever. And, you know, what a better guy to learn about recruiting, the work, the follow-up, the, like all of those things. I'm working with him for that first year. And so then he takes the job at Mankato uh, and then Luke Strand gets hired. And, you know, Luke Strand to me is like one of the smartest hockey guys I've ever been around. So for two years, you know, I'm just learning X's and O's and hockey and, and just video and personal development, player development. I did one year on the D bench, one year on the forward bench. He exposed me to all these things and then I go to Lowell. And uh, so I was kind of starting to figure out and being able to help a little bit. And um, it's funny because Norm and I used to talk and Norm came from CC, you know, way back when they were a juggernaut. And I don't know if you ever played in their rink, but it's like, it's like two oceans. It's, it's enormous. The old world arena, like it's insane. And so skating was like a huge thing. And for me, skating doesn't matter. It just has to be good enough. So we used to have a lot of conversations about things. Um, I think the one thing that when we got off to Lowell, two things, number one, we just said, we're going to do it different and different evolved, right? So the first year, our first recruiting class, the most successful class in Lowell history, we built out of the North American league before that was popular. So we went and got Hellebuck, Full, and Adam Chappie and A.J. White from the North American League. Three of those guys signed NHL contracts. Two of them played. One, a Hellebuck's like a unicorn, obviously, and, and wins a Vesna. So that's our first recruiting class. Um, you know, and that was just different, right? Because, you know, how are we going to go? We're not going to go slug it out with BC right away. We're not. We just went and talked about getting opportunities. So expand on that a little bit because you talk about all three of those guys coming out of the North American League, which is not the USHL, was the most popular league, you know, to to recruit from. Like, what was it about that class? What was it about those guys that number one attracted you to them, and then number two, why do you think they've had so much success? And maybe it's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, so we, we had a big class, so I, mean, I think it was 10 or 12 to start. So, and that wasn't all, um, you know, so that was four guys, but they were four pretty prominent pieces to that class. Um, so number one, again, there wasn't the competition. We were hockey East. And at the time we weren't competing with hockey East schools for these kids. You know, we were maybe competing with somebody else that, you know, living north of Boston, playing in that league was like really attractive to, right? And so that was, I think, something that that helped us. And you know, we were just kind of going in, and you know, when we when we got Hellebuck, like nobody was on. Anthony Stolarz was playing down the road in Corpus, and no one was recruiting Connor. 
everybody was chasing Stolars when we got Hellebuck to commit. And so we just kind of like figured our way through there. And uh, like Christian Follen, literally it was us in one other school. And he asked Call and he asked one question. He's like, can I have unlimited sticks? And the other school told him, no, we said yes. And then we did it. Like, that's so, well, me. that's so me. I would have asked a question like that. I love it. Like, he, you know, but he was a rink rat. He loved to shoot pucks. He's got a hammer of a shot. And, and it was something that like, he didn't want to like have to worry about saving sticks. He's coming from the North American league. And that's like a different, you just don't have those amenities. Like maybe at the USHL that a kid would even think to ask that question. So, um, so that was, that was kind of like, again, one that was just like, just getting some different kids and then how they flourished. I think, I think you could make a lot of argument about opportunity. Like, so those kids walk into a team and they're playing big minutes, right. And they're playing against Johnny Goudreau um, and not sitting behind Johnny Goudreau. And so all of a sudden we have first liners and they have first liners, but we're competing against them and they flourish and their confidence goes. And, you know, and then, like I said, I think, I think those, how we did it different morphed a little bit and we got really, I don't want to say got really lucky, but like we, we hit some jackpots, you know, like guy you had on Joe Gambardella, like that's a jackpot. Like, and you know, I've told Toph and I think you asked him about it. Like no one knew he was that good. If we would have known, we would have given him a full scholarship. We didn't <laughs> like, you know, we didn't know. And he, he just, and it was, he was outstanding for us. Right. Hellebuck. I didn't know he would be that. I thought he was going to come in and compete. I didn't know he would, break records um you know and, and then as you get around them you start feeling it but when we recruited him i'd be lying to you to tell you you know we're, hey we got a Vesna winner here and like no i think i got a guy that can compete like and uh so so those kind of things and i don't know i just i took pride at, at, at lowell that we stayed pretty true to our process and like as everybody was looking left and chasing that shiny we looked right and found maybe whatever you want to say, just like Norm used to say, it's just a Lowell guy. And, and again, whatever that means, um, maybe he's different to everybody else, but we just found a lot of players that no one was looking at because they were chasing something else. That's so true. And, and at the time that that was, cause that was around the time when I was in it too. And it, it, there was this, like, it was kind of like a shift to younger recruiting a little bit where people were going after the top 15 year olds, 16 year olds and stuff. And, and yeah, I really feel like you saw a lot of those high profile teams really start to struggle because a lot of those 15 and 16 year olds didn't pan out because they're 15 and 16. And we were no different at Cornell. We, we chased some of the shiny objects and we struck out on some people and, and we had a long, hard recruiting meeting, you know, where we asked some tough questions and it was like, okay, who are we? What are our type of kids? let's not go after the shiny objects. Let's go after our type of kids. And you're kind of still seeing the fruits of that right now where they've come in and, and, you know, Flanny and Benny have continued on to that and Shafe and, and bringing in the right people, just blue collar kids that fit in, in a small town of Ithaca, New York, not the bright lights of a Boston or, you know, somewhere else. And, and it just, it, it works. So I, I love to hear you say that, like, you have to know who you are, you have to know your identity and you have to bring in people that are really excited about that identity. And if you don't, you're having a lot of trouble, but it's really hard and it's hard to stay true to it. And it's hard yeah. to stay on that path because you're still getting those calls and you're still seeing those things. And the 
commits are still piling up around you and it's hard to just to know, like, I don't know who it is. Somebody's going to emerge. I don't know where he is, but we're going to find him somewhere. And uh, it's difficult, especially at that level. Um, you know, in the seven years, I mean, the transformation in recruiting, like it was, it was difficult. It is, it is difficult to do that, I think. Um, but as you said, and, you know, again, Norm and uh, Lowell lost in the finals this year. I mean, if you stay with it, it, it can, it can definitely reap some major rewards. Yeah. And you're not all over the place too. in recruiting, like, which is why Norm has had sustained success there. If, if you stay true to who you are and what you're doing and you work your bag off, <laughs> you know, to, to get those players and, and really invest in them. I mean, it's uh it's a pretty cool thing, but there's two sides of it too, right? Like there's, there's the recruiting side of bringing in the right kids and then there's actually coaching them. And I know you guys in Lowell invest a lot in player development. You guys had Adam Nicholas there that was working with your team for a time. He's a, he's a favorite yeah. of the show. Yeah. He's got, he's got some, some fun stories and opinions. That's for sure. Uh, and so talk to us a little bit about not just like recruiting the right kids, but what you guys would do there to invest in their development and then building that culture as well. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I think, uh, I think because we were able to have some success, like the spotlight, kind of got put on it. And then, you know, from, from the outside, there was just a ton of people asking like, what's going on there. Right. Cause it was just so like, it was Guilty. wild. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think we just, uh, again, was there a formula? Like we had a, did we have like this weekly planner of X, Y, and Z? Like, no. Um, did Norm really believe like, again, Adam, like Adam came in and, you know, we talked about it. So like a guy like Joe Gambardella, like, kind of a goofy skater, but his heart's bigger and his competitiveness is bigger than anybody I've ever met. So he can get, become a better skater. Like we can make him a little bit better, but I don't know that you can find somebody with that kind of intangibles. Right. And so you start looking at Michael Capla, like he was playing the NHL and, and had a different stride. He never lost a race, but he had a different stride. Like, so we can make them better but we couldn't access exactly what, what they possessed, you know, or if, if maybe they skated like McKinnon, like obviously then they would end up at BC. Right. And so um, we just kind of, I don't know. I, I just like to say we invested in them and, and whether that's personal video or skill work or staying after, I don't know that it's any different than what you're doing at, at Cornell or many teams are doing. It just, it kind of worked there. And uh, because it worked and, as you said, there was just this like meteoric rise. It just turned a lot of heads. Well, it goes both ways, right? The investment and development, it comes from the coach, but it also has to come from the player. So you talk about Gambardella, you guys put him in an environment and a situation where he could get better. And then he took it and freaking ran with it. And, and that's the thing, like, and we hear people talk about it. We had Ryan Hardy talks about it all the time. Like it's, it's a process where everybody has to be on the same page. And if you have the best coaching staff <laughs> with the best development plans and all that, but a kid's heart isn't in it, I mean, it doesn't matter how good of a coach you are, then you're not going to get that much better. And the same goes the other way. Like if you're a kid that really wants it, but you end up going to a program where the coaches don't really focus that much on development, you're not going to get that much better because you need help. You need support. So I feel like, you know, the, the marriage that you guys made between the coaches and the players that you brought in, like it was just, again, same page, 
all wanting the same things, all having the same work ethic. And, and that leads to, to special programs. And in fact, you've probably been around programs. I've been around programs. Can you've probably been around programs that were both ends of the spectrum <laughs> where maybe there wasn't as much investment in the players or the coaches. And it's a miserable, it's an absolutely miserable year. And then when you have all of that, where everybody's on the same page, God, what a, what an awesome experience. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. What we're talking about with the recruiting, like it starts with there and builds and, you know, is the snowball going down the mountain. And if you trust your coaches, like you're going to want to watch video with them and, you know, they're honest with you and you like what they have to say. So it just sounds like you guys had the right, the right pieces and the right glue. Yeah, I think I think we just like you said it 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 worked well and 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 then we just were able to sustain and kind of keep that ball rolling and and uh, you know little by little then like you said when we started it wasn't that maybe premier destination it turned into a pretty you know a really good competitive environment for us to recruit at um, you know and again that opened the door to a few other players and. But back to your back to your point, and I'll, I'll share this. But you know, we talked about Christian Follin, like another guy, C.J. Smith, like C.J. Smith, who played for Buffalo and Taxi Squad, whatever. One of the better players offensively to play for us. Like he never even visited, and he had us and a couple other schools, and he called Follin because they were teammates. And Follin's like, "Yeah, you should come." And the kid's like, "All right, I'm coming." never even visited our school. He visited the other two and didn't visit us. And uh, so back to like, if you're doing all these things, they know somebody and those kids, they're your best recruiters. I love that. I love that so much. All right, let's shift to another player. And that's Connor Hellebuck because this guy, like still Vex, his backstory plays four years in Michigan high school hockey. Then he plays one year the North American league level. Then he comes to Lowell and two years later, he signs an NHL contract. And I don't remember how many years after that he wins a Vesna. Um, so I have a couple questions for you on this cam. The, well, the first one I want to ask you is like, that's a pretty impressive story. I mean, four years of high school hockey in Michigan, you know, then he goes to the North American league for only one year. And then he comes to you guys. Like what is in this kid's makeup and DNA that, that happens because that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. So he is, um, one of the more driven, confident people in him, like what he is and what he does that I've ever met. I learned more from him than many people that I've been around. Like he just, there was just something there. And so I was lucky enough to be the guy that kind of helped, you know, put that on the road or, or whatever. Um, he's, yeah, I mean, he's just incredibly, you know, his first year pro, I mean, he came back, we played golf and he got into it and he's just like, I, I think I can win a Vesna. And I mean, this is probably five years ago, you know, and I'm like, I, I think so too. Like, but, and, and that's, but those are real, you know, and he believes that like, he believes like he walked in and when we were recruiting him, we had Doug Carr and, you know, Doug was, we had a lot of success at Lowell with goaltending and I would really trace it back to Doug. Um, Doug was a freshman when they made the coaching change. So he's a sophomore, my first year there. And uh, he just, I came in with some ideas and he just embraced them. 
So when Connor showed up, I didn't have to convince Connor. Doug did that for me, kind of. Just said, listen to this guy. But anyways, like, so Doug had like a 930 save percentage. And this is 10 years ago. That's pretty darn good. And uh, so we were kind of talking. Something came up about 930. And Connor's like, Nine, who wants to be 930? Like, be 950. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, uncle. Like, you know. <laughs> and then he goes out as a freshman and he's 952. And it's like that's like a real thought that like made sense to him and everybody around him is like, that is just insane. But he's like, no, I can do that. And then he just goes and does it. So I don't know if that captures it, but it's just, he's a, he's a phenomenal and he's just, he just, he just gets it, man. Like he, that's his element. Like he is just, that's his thing. Where do you think that confidence comes from? Is that an upbringing thing? Is that a gift from God thing? Maybe a little bit of both, like, I think it's, you know, I, I think he's been touched. I, again, not, not to take anything away. He's got a great family, but there's no, like, like he played high school in general. Cause like his brother played high school with him, and, and like, you know, there wasn't, it, there's no real athletics in the family that would say, you know, point to this or that. Like, it's just, he just, you know, arrives. And like, again, he's just, he's got a mind and it's, it's like a, I, I don't know, like, like the hockey East as a freshman, we played Providence. Um, he gives up a goal in the first period, like six or eight minutes in. And the next day, like, I didn't think he played it great. Like, so, you know, we would have a really good, we had a good relationship. And I kind of said, he's like, no, I know you're going to say, but he's like four weeks ago, like this kid did this with a stick and this and this, and he fanned on that puck coach. And he's like, that's why that beat me. Like he, and I was just like, wow. <laughs> and, then, and then he just like, and then he doesn't give up a goal for the next, you know, the next night. And then the next year at the tournament and, you know, we went back to back hockey East championships and he gave up one goal in four games. And he's just like, he's just got that. That's like a whole different level of something, you know, again, I can't necessarily like put my finger on that, but that's, and that would be a lot of the time, like all the time, you know, he talked penalty killer Our penalty kill is great. Cause we'd say, what do you want? Connor? I'll give me this we'd figure it out and then like try to beat them. And it just didn't work out very well for a lot of people. <laughs> oh, crazy. All right. So we got Connor Hellebuck, but Connor Hellebuck is not the only goalie under your tutelage that have done pretty cool things. So like this for me is a million dollar question because, you know, I, I coached at a place for five years where defense and goaltending is very, very important but the numbers that you've been able to put up as a coach with some of these players and some of these teams is legitimately ridiculous. Like not even freaking fair. So Vex, you ready for this? So, I mean, you already talked about Hellebuck 952 as a freshman, you know, you've had other goalies go through Lowell similar, maybe not quite that good, but very, very good numbers. Again, we talked about the championships and all of that. And a lot of it had to do with how great you guys were defensively, but then you get to Norwich and last year before the shutdown, you guys gave up less than a goal per game, like 0.86 goals against average for your team. That is absolutely ridiculous. You guys had a shutout streak of nine games for nine games. Teams didn't score on your team. That is absolutely ridiculous. So 
there's two parts to this question. The first one is the goaltending part of it, because we've had conversations and like the, the one thing that I took from our conversation is like, you're not afraid to change things with goalies. And a lot of goalie coaches, you know, let guys be who they are, maybe tweak some things, but you get really right into the nitty gritty of stuff. So talk to us a little bit about kind of like your philosophy in coaching goalies. And when you see something, what you do to help them change them, you know, elevate their strengths, look what their weaknesses are. Like what's, what's your overall philosophy in, in, in coaching these guys? Um, yeah. So it's actually like incredibly simple. I just, I think that for me, there's like one way to play the position. And I know a lot of people don't like hearing that, but like if now there's, there's different ways to play situations. So like Hellebuck is six, four, he's going to play a situation maybe different than, somebody that's 5'11". But if a guy comes down the right wing and snaps off a shot from the top of the circle, I expect my goalies to look the exact same. And that's always been my thing. And I I just, I really like work on that. And um, I find that to your point, like a lot of people don't like change um, with goalies, right? And, And so like I gave a presentation once and I had a defenseman that was getting beat with wide speed, got uncomfortable. And instead of pivoting, he went the other way. And I'm like, as a coach, like who, how many people in here would say, Hey, we got to work on this kid's pivot so that he feels more comfortable. Right. And like, you know, Jeff, you're, you're in an industry that, you know, if somebody comes in with poor form, they're going to hit a threshold until you fix that. Right. And so sitting here, we would all say, yeah, that makes total sense to fix this pivot, to fix this pivot. It would make total sense to like fix his form but in goalies it's like taboo like I just work with what he's got and to me then you just hit this like threshold where you can't get any better so it's not overly like what it is is it's like boring it's monotonous and it's just working on that over and over and over so that you know at the end of the day you know pucks that hit us pucks that come to us like we're taking care of those pucks better than other people. So whether they stick to us, whether pucks are getting sticked into the, into the netting, you know, so again, and, and I do like three or four goalie drills. I just do them over and over and over, you know? And, and I just think like, you know, everybody wants to do things that is like, and maybe it's again, the shiny, like do things that are cool. Well, if you break down a college hockey game, like where are the shots coming from? how are those shots getting to the net? So if I break it down, I'm like 60, 70% are like a certain way. And then there's, you know, there's some wraps and jams and, but like people are using 70% of their time on like the reverse VH or the VH or these certain pad things, which I'm not saying that's not important, but if only 30% of your day is spent there, why are we spending 70% of our time there? And, uh, so again, I'm just like the most boring guy ever. Like when we did Tom the first year, um, I had had an assistant coach that also worked with goalies. And I told him like, this is what we're going to do. And he thought there was like a next part of it. And I'm like, no, it's all (laughs) we're going to do the whole year. And then, you know, we, we, we just had this run. And, and, um, so again, I think it's just kind of being disciplined to be boring and just get really good at that stuff. So um, now talking to them, like, again, I've, I've been fortunate back to Doug Carr and Hellebuck and you get a resume 
And, you know, the kids are maybe asked the same question you do. And I'm like, all right, if this is what you want to do, then let's get here. You know, again, Doug Carr, my, my thing with Doug, because Doug was like nowhere near what I liked right away. I said, we're going to do this every day, the same time, every time, every rep, and you're going to stop one more puck this year. Like, are you good with that? I'm going to be hard on you, and I'm going to hold you accountable. One more puck this whole year. That's all you're going to stop. He's like, yeah, let's do it. And that year we went and we played Miami in the first round, and they had a power play late, and a puck squirted out, and Riley Smith had an open net. And literally, you got the overhead cam in Bridgeport, and he gets the middle of his skate blade on it. And we win in overtime. And after the game, he's like, Coach, that was my one more puck. Oh, chills. So you're like, that's like pretty cool, you know? And uh, I don't know. So I just believe in it, and it's just just a process. Do it over and over and over and over and over. Vex, what do you think about that? Just, I mean, what a simple philosophy. And it's, it's a philosophy that we honestly preach a lot on this podcast. You know, it, it isn't the shiny things. It's like development and greatness is, is boring. It, it really is. <laughs> it, it is doing it's, the same it's monotonous. thing all the time. Yeah. I, I, don't wanna, I wouldn't say that it's boring because there's ways to make doing the same thing fun. You can have fun with them. But it's, it's monotonous. It's tedious. It's that, that same things over and over and over and i'm so happy you said that it's so cool to hear that but like people don't think about that you know you said and it's i think it's probably even less than that you're like 70 30 so why are we inverting that and spending 70 percent on the stuff you only do 30 percent of the time it's probably even less than that people you know goalie coaches spending so much time on something they're going to use you know 30 times in 50 games a year why why are we working so much on this Let's work on the basics. Let's, let's get unbelievable at the basics. And that's going to take care of almost everything. That's unbelievable. I can't believe with nine shutouts in a row that you don't have, and all of your other you know goalies you worked with, you don't have every NHL team calling you right now. I mean, that is not, I've never heard of any team in any league getting nine shutouts in a row. That is, that is amazing. Yeah. So that was fun. I mean, Tom, Tom was special. Our team was special. You know, we, we touched on that group and it just, it had a life of its own a little bit, you know, and then, you know, I would, I would just preface that we also scored goals during that time. Like, (laughs) like it wasn't, you know, again, it's, it's the curse and the blessing. Like, you know, when you're putting up good defensive numbers, people think you're boring. Right. And they, they think of maybe like, you know, the New Jersey Devils left wing lock. And, and I just, I kind of think of it the other way. Like we're incredibly uh, aggressive. Like I think aggressiveness is the enemy of skill. Like we got to go like pressure, pressure, pressure. And um, so we, you know, we did score during that time too. Like, and, and we're, we're able to go. And, and again, uh, you mentioned it. And I do think there's a philosophical system part two that it's not just the goalie it's not just the system it's the way they're married together so um you know again it's been a lot of fun taking over a head coaching job being able to implement some of that and then having some success in, in, a, in a you know pretty quick amount of time it's awesome and like yeah i mean i have to believe there's so many things going on in there number one above all else is that the guys believe in you and your message and they're all bought in because we all know that you don't win a game, let alone nine shutouts in a row 
if everybody's not bought in. So that's unbelievable. But I also want to touch on something you said there. And I haven't said this in a very, very long time. I know I said it a couple times early on in the podcast. I don't remember what your exact uh, phrase was there. I know, Tope, what'd you write down? The, the enemy of skill. Aggressiveness is the enemy of skill. I wrote that Aggressive, down. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I saw you writing it down. Uh, I just steal his <laughs> notes. Um, aggressiveness <laughs> is the enemy of skill. And for any coaches out there, players out there listening, um, it's so true. And, and this was a simple saying that my coach and juniors used to tell us all the time. But like, I think it allows people to really uh, understand that even more is that if you give a great player, if you give an average player time and space, he's going to become a good player. If you give a good player time and space, he's become a great player. You give a great player time and space, he's going to be unbelievable. The same is true on the inverse. You give an unbelievable player, you take or you take away that time and space, and you're all over him. He's going to become great. You know, great becomes good. Good becomes average. Average becomes bad. So I mean, time and space and and, and taking away their their ability to to use their skill and their vision and things like that. You take that away, even playing field, it's going to be a lot. And then not even that, it's going to be even harder for them. So uh, I just wanted to say that again, because I think that's so important. Yeah. I mean, I've just been able to, again, we, I, I learned a lot, stole a lot from the different people that um, I, I like worked with. Um, we got to play with it through like Lowell. We implemented some of it and then I was able to kind of like you know put my stamp on it and like I said it's been I've been excited to just to be here but it's been cool just to like see that it works because <laughs> you know again when you take over and you jump in your head coach you, you, assistant coaching is like you got all the answers when you're an assistant because you got you don't have to make any decisions, right? You just give all the input, so you got all the answers, and it's a little bit different when you sit in the big chair. And so it's been it's been cool just to kind of see that work, I guess. So what what do you feel like you've learned the most being in the big boy chair now, where you're making those decisions, and you know what's been the biggest kind of learning curve for you? Um, you know, again, I'll go back to like my progression and the timing and all that, like being around Norm he was an unbelievable program operator, you know, like, because, you know, college head coaching D one or D D three is not as much about the X's and O's. It's, it's a lot of those other things. And you're almost like a CEO, right? It's like a the CEO bit. of a company. Yeah. Now, now what's cool here is just the way the, the, the staffing and, and you don't have as much support. So you're, I'm, I'm more into it than maybe some people can be, but, um, I think, I think for me, the, just the confidence in like believing in like my gut, like, um, making those decisions and then just being totally like honest, honest with, Hey, you're not playing or, Hey, we need more or, Hey, you're doing great. Or, Hey, this, or, Hey, that, like just being like direct and honest. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been kind of a, it's been a great experience. And like I said, I, I, I took this job excited for the opportunity, but there's part of you're like, I hope, I hope I can do this. You know, it's, it's, you don't know until you try. And so it's been, um, you know, I've learned a ton, but I just think that honesty and then just believing in like your gut, like, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I know what the feel is got to put always the team first and we got to make those decisions. 
Yeah, it's so true. And it's great hockey too at the division three level. And I feel like that's one thing that a lot of kids kind of growing up, they don't really understand how good division three hockey is and how serious a lot of these coaches and programs take it. And, and I do want to ask you about that because, you know, you're walking into Norwich and, and Norwich um, with McShane has, has been a powerhouse and you're coming in and you're just elevating that even to another level with what you've been able to do over the past couple of years. But just talk a little bit about how like your experience going from division one to division three has been and talk about just like the, the product and, and how good it is, because I feel like a lot more people need to understand that like it's almost like even some of my people be like oh i'll just play division three if i can't play division one well it's like well no you actually got to be probably your leading scorer on your junior team to play division three as well (laughs) you know or bring something really really good to the table so talk a little bit about your experience at that level i appreciate you asking that because i would tell you that um like i think you're saying like just there's an ignorance of not knowing how good it is um i was really fortunate some of the people I mentioned, Luke Strand was coached at D3. I ended up working with Keith Paulson, played coached at D3. Jason Lammers played coached at D3. Andy Jones played coached at D3. Norm coached at D3. So like I had kind of learned some of it, but I didn't really know. And, and coming here, I've been incredibly humbled um, on, on all facets. The, you know, I like to say I got division one players with a story. There, there's no reason that some of my guys can't be there or that maybe somebody at this other place couldn't be here. Like somebody decided, you know, we, we've done the recruiting thing. Tof. Like we go in, we make a decision. That kid's going D1, that kid's going D3 because one of us that got up in the morning and made that decision. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not that if we would have gone the other way, it couldn't have worked the exact opposite. So, um, again, I've been humbled by the level. The level is, uh, you know, extremely competitive, like ex- extremely competitive and you know people take it extremely serious and the other thing that I think maybe has humbled me the most is just the work and the care that these kids and you brought up McShane like I walked into a good situation he you know he had that humming he had that going and you know we're trying to you know pay homage to that all the time um you know at Lowell we had that blue collar you talked about it at Cornell like blue collar like I would put the work ethic of my guys here against either of those teams. And, and, and I could almost argue because at D one, you got the agents and you got the NHL and you got everybody's that spotlight, like there's motivation there. And our guys here don't have that. And they're working every bit as hard, if not harder. And then it's kind of thrilling when you're a coach, because back to, you know, what you, we talked about before, like when you talk about a culture, I got, I got all these guys care about is putting this Jersey on all these guys care about is like winning a championship or being together, or it's not, well, next year I'm going to go here or my agent says this. And you know, those are things that you fight at the D one level. And here it's just been not that there's not challenges, not that some guys don't want more ice or more power play time, but it's rarely about a conversation with an agent. It's more just a kid coming in. Like, what do I got to do? So the, I think the level's great. Um, you know, I encourage anybody that's kind of in that period, just like give, give them, give any division three coach calling you like ample time, ample energy. And I can promise you, like, if you're playing in December on a Friday, putting your skates on, you're not wondering, uh, I wonder what's going on down the road at D one school X. Like you're there with your teammates ready to go. And it's, it's a, it's been a phenomenal 
step for me. And I think another thing too is like talking about the the players, especially the players in junior hockey, like don't blow a D3 guy off. <laughs> the, the, oh, I'm a surefire division one player. I'm not, I'm just going to treat this guy like he's nothing. Don't do that for a couple different reasons. Number one, you might not be as surefire as you think, because <laughs> there's a lot of kids out there who are vying for those same divisions, one spots as you. But the other things that kids don't realize is that as division one coaches, we are watching a lot of the same players as the division three coaches. And we talk to division three coaches all the time about what they're seeing, who they like, what they're hearing and all that kind of stuff. So if you treat a division three coach like crap, because you don't, you're, you're they're beneath you because you think you're going to be a division one player. Well, guess what? Maybe that division one school is going to talk to that exact same coach. And he's going to ask that coach, Hey, have you seen this player? And be like, well, yeah, I saw him. And I tried to talk to him and he was an asshole. <laughs> so just, just cautionary tale that like the brotherhood of college hockey doesn't just extend to division one. Like there's a lot of great relationships that I've built with division three coaches who are now division one coaches, you know, Sean Flanagan took my spot at Cornell. And the huge reason why is because Benny and I had a great relationship with Flanny and we talked to him about players and he was really, really good at his job and he built a lot of great things at Hobart. So like, you know, there, there's so much connectiveness between the two levels. And I think that's another thing that kids need to understand is that like, there's not only a lot of really good players at the division three level, but there's a lot of really good coaches at the division three level that are going to be division one, either assistants or head coaches at some point down the road too. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I just think, you know, again, you're, you're talking about, you know, and, and listen, a kid, I get it a lot of time. Hey, I want to see what happens. D one. I'm like, that's fine. Like, I'm, I'm good with that. I get that. I hope it's, I hope you get that for you. I just, I would encourage anybody that again, gets a call, show interest, show excitement. And I think you'd be surprised if you peel back one layer of what those opportunities might look like. Um, because again, I, I would argue like the guys in my room are having a great college hockey experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're talking about experiences right now and I'll shift it a little bit to something that you and I have talked about a ton of times and you know it's, it's kind of nice to talk about the brotherhood a little bit and it's really really cool to find people in this business where you have a lot of shared experiences the ups and the downs and it's another thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is that just kind of like how how difficult the life of recruiting can be and when you're on the road for as much as we are and um, you're, you're missing your family and you're missing your kids and there's other things that you're sacrificing from a life standpoint to, to chase your dream as a coach, it, it's, it's not easy. It's a big part of the reason why, why I left uh, to, to do what I'm doing now. And, and you and I have had a lot of deep conversations about this and trying to figure, <laughs> you know, figure life out. And, and uh, you know, so, so talk to us a little bit about just, I hate the word balance because I feel like balance is just so hard. It's so hard to get and not just in our profession, but just in every profession and, and stuff like that. But, you know, we've had a lot of different conversations about this and now that you're at the division three level where it's a little bit different than the division one grind of an assistant coach being away. And, you know, talk to us a little bit about your experience now and, and what you learned from being in the grind and how you're taking that to your job here and, and how everything is with your family as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So, yeah, I mean, you were, you were like the trailblazer, right? So, um, 
yeah, I don't know that there's like a finish line for a lot of us, or at least I feel like we don't know if there's a finish line. We just like, we want to get in hockey and then we want to, we want to coach. And then all of a sudden we want to get to college. Cause that's where at least in our, you know, area, it's like where the best players are. And like, so, and then you just go and you're going and going and going. And I'll tell you, like, I loved my time there. Like I love my time at Lowell. I was there you know, seven years and I loved the idea of like, putting together teams like that puzzle and, 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 but to do that, I mean, you're gone a hundred plus nights a year on a, on a fairly average year. I mean, you're just gone a lot. And um, that's to get six to eight kids a year. Right. And so when you break it down, I mean, you're just doing a lot of checking and, you know, but it's, it's sometimes it's getting the right ones and making sure you don't get the wrong ones and making sure, you know, all of those things are important. So, you know, again, you and I have had those conversations and, um, you were someone in that business that as, uh, as I, you know, I, I started having kids and that first year, my son, who's now four, was just, it was way harder. Like it was just being gone and, and not only being gone from him, which was hard, but just knowing that like my wife was home by herself. Cause we're living in New Hampshire, working in Massachusetts. We don't have any family there. Like it's, it's, you know, so there's just, there was all of those things. Now, again, there's, we would have kept doing it or, um, but you know, she actually asked and we we're pregnant with our second and, you know, she's like, what is like the next, like, what is the goal? And at that time I was just running so fast and trying so hard that I didn't, you know, I'd always wanted to be a head coach, but what, you know, was that going to happen? If that was going to happen, like, what did that look like? And so, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. Like Alaska opened up and I'm like, all right, we're going to go. And like, I went up there and I, I was so excited to go and like show them that I could be a D one head coach. And then I'm, I'm on that plane for six hours from mini. And then I'm six hours back and I'm just like, and I love being there. And I'm just like, I, I can't leave my wife with two kids and be gone for 14 days on, on, a, on, a, on like whether it's recruiting or playing or, and it was just like, you know, kind of like not crossroads where I'm going to like get out of it, but like I got to make some hard, decisions. And again, we talked at length over those things. And, um, and so now, yeah, then all of a sudden this came open and, um, you know, it's funny. I, I took the job here. Norm walked in actually and said, Hey, you, you should look at this. And, um, and, and I, I got in the process and was fortunate enough to get offered and, and was thrilled to get offered and, and came here. And it was a pretty prominent coach in hockey East that I saw like three, four days later. And he's like, you know, congrats what are you doing why would you go there like you said like McShane built it but congrats and uh and you know again Norm was always like never be afraid of going somewhere that they can win like if they'll give you those pieces it's way better than the alternative to go somewhere where you can't you know so it's like don't be afraid of that challenge so coming here like for me was like a huge like can I do this that was like my thing you know I, I I've I was with Norm for seven years, had some opportunities to look at different things. I only wanted to leave to be a head coach. I loved being there. I loved building. I learned so much from those classes turning over, but it takes a toll on like the time, you know, and, and you're just gone on so much. And so when I started having kids, it just became like, how do I balance? And if this wouldn't have come up, I'm sure we would have figured something out, but now I'm here and I'm a head coach. Um, you know, our, our season is considerably shorter. 
you ask what I've brought. I mean, my relationships from traveling North America for seven years, being able to call on kids or talk about things, I, I think that's helped, um, you know, identify kids for us to recruit here at Norwich. Um, I'm, I think I'm just a better father. I think I'm a better husband um, just because I have time. I, I'm here, um, you know, and again, I, I bought a house a thousand yards from campus. So I can come here, I can go home for lunch, I can go for a nap time. I can, you know, I, I, all of those things have made me incredibly like full. And, uh, you know, again, so whatever word you say, like that's, that's kind of been my thing. So now I get to do what I love and to be around kids that humble me and inspire me. I get to be a dad and a husband. Like it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, ours, ours is a business where, you know, <laughs> I would imagine 90% of us in it are very hardworking individuals and have a passion for hockey and building and coaching and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so you get so consumed in it that, you know, it, it's, it's this hard juggling of, because at the same time, like when you're so consumed and this is something that I've learned and, and Jeff and I talk about this, like when you're so consumed and, and you're so narrow-minded on only doing this one thing and you're neglecting these other things in your life, you're not going to be as good in that one thing that you're zoning in on because you have zero balance in your life. And that's where I was when I decided to take a step away is I was, I was so like driven, but also kind of burnt out and my relationships and my personal life were not anywhere near they needed to be. And it just, you know, being able to take a step back and it's so cool to hear you, even like the tone of your voice and just hearing you talk with such fulfillment about finding that, you know, because I know you're a big family guy and, and just kind of hearing how it's almost like, that side of your life allows you to be a better coach as well. And you finding that happy medium with that, it's, it's just, it's what we should all strive to do. You know, we, we pride ourselves on being the hardest workers. We pride ourselves on it and being on the road for a hundred to 200 days a year and not being outworked. It's something we talk about all the time, but there's, there's another component to it where you got, you got to work smart. <laughs> I look back and I, did I need to go to that Sunday game in Ontario and spend eight hours in the car and not with my wife, like to, to watch a game that I didn't really need to watch. No, like, no, but it was that I have to outwork people. But if you can find a way to, to refuel your tank by doing things that you like outside of it, you're going to be a better coach, you know, and maybe on that Monday when you're with your actual team and you're coaching, you're a better coach. <laughs> and so your team is going to be better. It's just that, that figuring out it's tough. It is. Well, and I would say that, you know, again, not knowing Shafe intimately, but knowing Norm, like Norm was an assistant and like was incredibly conscious of that so it wasn't even like norm was driving me to do that it was the job was driving me to do that and my own totally my own work was driving you know what i mean like you would probably say that was shafe like shafe he played for him and care he cares from everything i've ever heard and all the meetings i've been around him. he's a great guy it wasn't like i think it's important to say that it's not something that like our bosses were these like i think we had two of the best and yeah and, you know it's just your own whatever that own engine own driver and uh yeah so again I, I feel incredibly fortunate to like again get to check 
all these boxes now. And to your point, like, I think I'm better because of it. I'm, I, I, I'm, I know I'm better personally, but I think I'm better professionally too. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, you talk about it. Like stress is a very real thing and stress is a thing that can, you know, really decrease your performance tenfold. And the, the, the job that we were in as D1, like that's a stressful job, especially when you're, you're grinding it and you're probably not taking care of yourself with your nutrition and your sleep and you're getting into hotel rooms at 3 a.m. and you're wearing it as a badge of honor, right? And you almost see like that stress as like a badge of honor because you're outworking people. But at the end of the day, like you, you take a step back and you look at it, it's like, okay, it might be a badge of honor, but maybe that's just my own ego talking because the, I'm not producing what I should be producing in terms of the product of me as a coach or a recruiter, because maybe I'm at that game the next day, you know, and, and I can't focus because I'm so freaking tired or I get back at, at 2am and I got to be on the ice with the team the next day. And I'm, I'm just not all there because I'm tired, you know? So like just finding that balance and then also just parlaying that with your family life and making sure that the people that you love are taken care of and uh, feel appreciated and, and all of that. I mean, it's a, it's definitely a learning experience and, and one I wish I would have learned when I was in it. <laughs> and we've all had a bunch of different conversations. And I've told you, like, when I left, you weren't the only person being like, Hey, how's, how's everything on that other side? Like there were a lot of guys that called me and we're like, you know, I'm, I'm burnt out and I don't know. And I got young kids and, and I got a wife that's taken all of this burden for me not being around. And I just, I don't know what to do. And, and it's, uh, it, it's a humbling business. And I really feel like a lot of guys and women on the women's side would do a lot of good to every once in a while, take a state take a step back, assess your own personal health and mental health and well-being and your relationships. Because if you don't, I don't think you're going to be as good of a coach as you, you want to be. I would tell you, I, I would share one story. It was like my first, second, third, probably my second or third year. And, you know, again, you get in coaching, you get like, what do you get for Christmas? Like five days, maybe, you know, yeah. um, maybe, 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 <laughs> yeah, maybe even not even that, but, um, the way the schedule worked out, we just had this little time. And again, we had no family close. So my wife and I booked this like four day cruise. We flew down to Miami, got on a boat. My phone was off for four days. Norm totally supported it. And we flew back and I come in the office and I might've done some of my best. I was so energized. I was so like, just excited to get back. It was like, I was gone for four days, you know, but the phone was off and, and nobody could get in touch with me because I was out in the ocean somewhere. And uh, again, that health. Now, even knowing that I couldn't bring myself to do that at later points. So, <laughs> so, so it's, uh, you know, it's just, again, it's, as you said, and you've, you've, uh, there's been people that have asked me how I like it. And, and again, I'll share all those great stories of like where I'm at. And, uh, you know, again, I, my thing, I don't know if I like it as much because of the job of getting into that bigger chair or having a bigger voice. I mean, there's so many things that are incredibly satisfying for me to do. It's, it's, I think a combination, but this has allowed me to 
definitely balance out a lot more things, you know, and again, that's just my own self. And they said, whether that's crazy pride or whatever we want to say. So, <laughs> all right. Well, before we let you go, Cameron, uh, the last question I have for you is you know, you're working at Norwich, the Norwich cadets, and obviously a huge military presence at that school. And, and just in talking to you the other day, talking about military leadership and you've gotten the chance to get to know some of these really high level thinkers and really high level people when it comes to leadership and stuff. So I'm wondering if you can like, just bring us in a little bit on that and maybe something that you've learned from the, the military people that you've been able to talk to as well. Yeah. So it's been amazing. Um, just, as we all do, we just try to keep getting better, right? I'm trying to get better at my job. And, and sometimes that means it's a power play breakout. Sometimes it means, you know, getting better recruiting. And sometimes it's, you know, in leadership. And that's something that you know, I'm constantly trying to strive for. And, you know, I'm, I grew up in Canada, didn't have a, a ton. It's just a different culture that, that call to serve isn't as prevalent in that country. Um, and so, you know, and then, and then really in our era, like we watched like full metal jacket, you know, we watched like GI Jane where they're just like these like hardos, like screaming and yelling. And, and so, you know, we are the, the first U S uh, private military school at, at Norwich, which is, you know, been around 200 years celebrated our 200th year anniversary last year. I mean, it's just crazy. And the people that have come through here and the positions that they've, um, you know, a team and, and it's just wild. So we have three acting colonels in the U S military that serve the United States by being here and overseeing our ROTC program. So we have an army colonel an air force colonel and a Navy colonel that are like that live in town and that are here and accessible. And as you said, I mean, that's been something for me, like they've been incredibly um, willing just to spend time with, me and, and, and some other coaches and talk about their experiences um, and leadership. And the crazy thing, the one thing that has just like blown my mind and like, it's just people, take care of people, culture, people. Um, and that's again, like, I was kind of like tippy toeing into it thinking it was going to be this whole different thing. And, and at least the people that are here now and the people that I get to be around, it's all about taking care of your people and serving your people and being humble enough to like serve others. And, uh, you know, it's something that I believe in. It's something that I try to do. And then just like finding ways to do that better, um, finding ways to do that maybe more efficiently, different ways to communicate, like, but it's been an unbelievable experience for me. Um, exciting every day. Like I got another, meeting tomorrow with this other like leadership guy that I got introduced to through one of the colonels and like just trying to find ways. But I mean, just their experience are so, and I mean, have such different consequences than ours. And, uh, and the idea that I get to hang around with these guys and pick their brains. Um, it's been an unbelievable experience. And I think it's made me way better. And I hope I can like impart that onto the kids that I serve here. Very, very cool, man. Well, this has been a great experience for the past hour or so. <laughs> so we appreciate you taking the time to to come on here. Like I said at the beginning, I can't believe we're, we're this many episodes in. We haven't had you on yet, but uh, awesome to have you on. Very cool what you're building there uh, at Norwich. 
Jesus, we'll, we'll talk about your records and stuff in the intro. I don't want to get your head too big as we're, we're talking about this right now, but yeah, really, really fun having you on man to talk about this stuff. It's been a long time coming and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch, but best of luck here uh, as we head into the spring months and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Vex, uh, you got anything? You've been kind of quiet this episode. You're the talent, man. <laughs> I was up at 345 this morning writing workouts. And so <laughs> talking about that balance, I was thinking, yeah, I probably need some of that some, t- some days here a little bit. But so, I mean, that actually helped me listening to that. So thank you for that. Awesome stuff, man. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Take care. Thank you.